0: If you hit your head in a game of school rugby, the rules about concussion are clear right from the start.
1: Rugby is the first sport in New Zealand to have a mandatory stand down, which ensures you know, hopefully that the majority of concussions that do Um, come back, they're fully recovered before they do with their 21, 23-day stand down. That's
0: only the beginning. Their latest focus? Supporting young athletes who suffer a head knock to return not to play, but to the classroom. But what if you're playing underwater hockey or netball? They've also got rules, but they might not be the same rules. And who knows about these rules? The school, the team, the parents... It seems a no-brainer, sorry about the pun, that the rules should all be the same. I mean, we're talking about thousands of teams every year who get concussed. And the horror stories of the effects of a head knock in sport are coming at us thick and fast. Steve's only 42 with four young kids, and he's already experiencing symptoms of dementia from repeated blows to the head playing rugby. He was a first-round draft pick in 2003,
1: and today Larry Johnson says there are two entire NFL seasons... simply doesn't remember. I will never be the same person that I was before these things. 99% of the brains of former NFL players studied were damaged. All but one had CTE, the disease caused by repeated blows to the head.
0: But when it comes to laws on concussion or even standard protocols covering every sport... New Zealand lags behind other countries. The province of Ontario passed legislation this year aimed at protecting youth in amateur sport from head injuries such as the one suffered by Rowan Stringer, the 17-year-old Ottawa rugby player for whom the bill Rowan's Law is named.
1: To set the stage for proving and acting on the notion that we care for our children, that they'll be able to trust that the coaches and the parents and the other athletes will help them get out of the game so they can heal and come back and still play sports for their whole life and have a great life.
0: I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on The Detail, rugby leads the pack on concussion statistics, so no surprise that it leads the way with the protocols around head knocks. We'll meet New Zealand rugby's Dr Danielle Salmon, whose research feeds into the way the game is played, But let's kick off with NZ Rugby's Head of Community Rugby, Steve Lancaster. He's part of the new push to get national concussion laws for all sports, starting with secondary students.
2: I do find this area around legislation really interesting. You you look at what they've done in the States and in Canada, and it's across all sports, right? It's not around any individual sport. I think we could learn from that.
0: I'm surprised that we haven't got something like that here.
2: Yeah, and we've gently... Uh, Started a conversation about whether, in fact, we should have something here. You know, we would welcome that conversation at a national level, both with the government, uh, with health agencies, and with other sports.
0: Why do you think it's so important?
2: We've got to look after our young people, but our people in general, but in particular our young people. And as you know, with young people, they don't always make good decisions. Um, There's there's a culture of bravado. Uh, and amongst New Zealanders right so again this isn't about anyone sport um, frankly but attitudes to concussion to head injury you know people tend to not want to disclose it or shrug it off or they're um, they're impatient to get back to sport uh, or they want to get back to school and to learning and they just don't understand actually the the longer term or medium term effects that a head injury or a head knock can can have so you know, what they've done in the states and in Canada is they've they've put some structure around that with the legislation. And we've just released the return to study or return to learn guidelines for rugby which essentially mirrors the type of programs that they have over there. Mm. Um, We will implement that for rugby. uh, But again, we think there's no reason why that couldn't be implemented across codes. And we're not precious about the IP. We're happy to share it um, and we're happy to take other sports along with us.
0: So it's called Return to Learn. Can you explain how that works?
2: Yes, we've had a graduated return to play in rugby for some time now, which is um, a process where a player returns to play after they've suffered. concussion uh, or a suspected concussion Um, but what we recognize is that there's an opportunity uh, and a need frankly um, in in assisting school students to return to learn so before they can get back out on the field we want them to be able to get back into the classroom and you know one of the things that um, people do at times lose sight of in in secondary school sport is that the students are there to learn first and to play sports second. Uh, so, the protocol that we've, we've introduced now um, wraps, takes a holistic approach in wrapping support around students um, who've suffered a concussion or a suspected concussion. It involves the student themselves, the teachers uh, that, that work with them, uh, their healthcare providers, their wider whanau. And it ensures that everybody's on the same page, that everybody understands what that process looks like and that we can get the students back into the classroom um, first and foremost and then we'll get them back on the field when they're ready.
0: OK, so a student's got concussion from playing some kind of sport. What What is the next step?
2: Well, so, and, and that's where I will only talk about rugby because yeah. I can't talk about what happens in other sports. But
0: that could be, yeah. what, what's happening in rugby could be the template for oh, any sport. Absolutely,
2: absolutely. So we... Yeah, we utilise the four Rs in rugby, uh, which is recognise, remove, recover, and return. So the first thing when when we, when we think a player being been concussed, uh, and again this could apply in any sport, is that you remove them, right? So you don't leave them out there and and check them after the game. Just get them off the field. If you even just suspect that a player could be concussed, you need to act fast to stop the game, remove them from the field. It is always better to be safe than sorry regarding possible brain injuries. You recognise and remove, then you focus on the recovery, so that comes down to diagnosis.
0: The player must then leave the field and immediately be checked for concussion by a doctor.
2: Then the community concussion uh, pathway provides us with some really good resources to assess whether or not a player has suffered a concussion.
0: As players, we have to be honest with our whanau, coach and health providers about how we feel throughout the whole process.
2: And then from there, it's just a graduated return back to normality.
0: Concussion doesn't look the same in every single person. That's part of the problem, isn't it?
2: Decreasing level of consciousness, convulsions, vomiting, tingling or numbness in the arms or legs, being clearly dazed, or poor memory. Remember, these symptoms can be delayed up to 48 hours later. I
0: think that's the thing, is we're only just starting to hear these stories, aren't we? I mean, we're hearing a lot about what's happening to the professional rugby players and other sports, but... I feel like we're only starting to hear stories about what's happening to young people when they get a head knock. After the huge head knock, my head was a bit foggy, a bit dizzy, blurred vision. Still get headaches, migraines, just drowsiness really. At the moment, I think I'm still struggling with concentrating. My mental health hasn't been so great. What do you see?
2: Yeah, so... It, it's a really complex space, and there's a lot of emerging science and a lot of emerging re- uh, research here, which means that we do are seeing more and hearing more. Um, but we're also working really hard to change attitudes and perceptions around concussions. So you know, I talked before about that sort of bravado um, culture of not admitting that you're injured or shrugging it off um, we're trying to break that down so that it's okay to recognize actually that you know someone suffered a concussion and so you know we and we've had a number of programs in place for a number of years now it all probably started with the well it actually started with rugby smart 25 years ago but the blue card initiative I'm not sure if you're aware of that but, you know you have red and yellow cards for foul play we now have a blue card in community rugby that the referee can also issue where um, he or she suspects that a player suffered a concussion and that um, requires the player to be removed from in the field and uh, assessed, and um, before they can return to play in subsequent weeks. So that's just raised awareness and destigmatized a bit the matter of concussion. What we've seen actually is, and what we expect to continue to see, is an increased incidence of concussion being reported. It doesn't mean that more people are being concussed. It just means that there's growing awareness and that people actually feel okay about reporting it, and then going through a process to return to full health. So. We, um, we, we quietly celebrate the increase in reporting, not because we think more people are getting concussed, but because it means that actually more people are aware of it and it's being reported and managed.
0: Yes, you heard it. They are quietly celebrating the rise in reported concussions because it means the message is getting through. Over the last five years, ACC has recorded more than 100,000 cases of concussion from various sports. Last year, nearly half a billion dollars was spent on treating more than 26,000 people with sport-related concussion, the highest number of claims in a single year. Among them were several thousand teenagers. Teenagers have the highest rates of sport-related concussions out of any age group, and up to 75% struggle returning to school afterwards.
2: There's two elements here for us, and and there's... There's perceived risk and real risk, right? And so there's absolutely real risk, but perceived risk is also a significant issue for us in community rugby. And so a lot of the programmes that we have in place, outside of the work that Danielle's doing, are around ensuring that actually people recognise and appreciate that there's a lot we do in rugby to mitigate the risk of people suffering a concussion.
0: So NZ Rugby has got the ball rolling on a concussion programme for teens with head knocks. It's an app that could be the template for other sport... Dr Danielle Salmon has been working on its development and
1: looking at the results. We've been working on a pilot study in Otago, a, a North Harbour and Hawks Bay and the Wairapa Bush that focuses on actually using an app and uh, a standard approach through a GP portal that um, people can use so there's a baseline assessment When that player is removed from the field, there's automated notifications that go out to, you know, the parents, the coach, the school and the PU saying, you know, Danielle was playing for Otago Girls and fell over and hit her head and kind of was a little bit wobbly when she got up. So, you know, everybody gets an email saying, hey, this has happened. So they're aware that, you know, I've been pulled off for a suspected concussion. I get some guidance on what I should do for the first 48 24 to 48 hours, I should then go see a GP. I then get my diagnosis. I do my graduated return to learn, return to play. And then when I'm ready to go back to contact training, I have to go back into the doctor um, and When my concussion's logged, there's an access word and code. So when I give that to the GP, they can see my baseline assessment and they can redo that assessment and they can use that information to help inform their clinical decision.
0: And so are you saying that this should be the standard across all sport?
1: It would be lovely if it is, but really... In the work that we've done, a lot of schools potentially from the health and safety indicate they have a concussion policy. But when you start speaking to people, you know, it's kind of hit or miss and when it's implemented. So I think really what we're calling for is that, you know, at that high school level, if a concussion occurs and on the playground, on the sports field, on the way to school, there's a key contact person that's notified at the school they then start kind of a flow where that student's asked to see the school nurse, the doctor, get a diagnosis, parents are informed, teachers have some information about how to manage the student through mm. their recovery because I guess what we've what we've learned through the rugby is that there's really clear guidelines on how you rest for 48 hours, you do light exercise for 14 days and you increase the intensity then you can go back to non-contact and then you can go um, get medically cleared and you can go back to contact. But I guess the process to returning to learn in school, again, is a little bit more challenging.
0: Researchers say returning too early can have massive long-term implications. We're students before we are athletes. Putting a bit more emphasis into
2: uh, students and young athletes um, would be great because we need to protect them if we want to have athletes in the, in the future. Because
1: again... Potentially, the guideline is you start with, you know, maybe half days, see how you go, then you start, you can go back to full time, if you find that's too much, you can take these brain breaks. But again, how do teachers get that information on, oh, this person really struggles with screens, we need to print off all the resources, or, you know, I need to ensure that this student takes five minute breaks each hour so that we're not, you know, stressing their brain and, you know, prolonging their So it's how do we, you know, how do we support teachers to manage? Because again, you know, you've got 30 kids, you know, in your class, it's a challenge, you know, this is just one thing. But again, if we can help support that to make that easy so that there's a process in place, we know the outcomes tend to be better. The brain is so complicated. It we're just starting, I think, to understand it and start to scratch the surface. So I think it's really cool to be, you know, involved in this process and understanding how we can help support people when they've had injuries, but also, you know, what we can do in the prevention space as well. The more we understand is it's it's also plays a big factor is here is. You know um, your genetics looking at your family history whether or not you've had a history of mental health issues um, also understanding alcohol really plays a big role in you know your cognitive processing and if you've been involved in taking recreational drugs that plays a big impact so I think we've got to ensure that decisions are being made that are informed by research and that's where you know this study where we're looking at right now with um, the Otago University where we're measuring players' head impacts and looking at um, the impact sustained during the course of a game and training with mouth guards are really important. What
0: are you finding out so far?
1: What we we are starting to see is that um, there are differences between kind of the men's and women's game, which is kind of exciting, is can we use that information to um, better prepare women and better train our coaches so that when it comes to, you know, women playing a sport, we've we've got protocols and training practices in place that actually reflect what happens in the women's game.
0: If there was a law like there is in Canada and the US, everybody would know
1: what that was and they could refer to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's been numerous areas of research that have indicated if you can standardise a process of care, that you improve the quality of care that's provided. And I think, you know, that's where we should be really focusing on, I think, in New Zealand is how do we provide a standard approach to how we manage concussions for, for our, our you know our young students and that we know that they're supported because you know, I don't know how many times you hear that you know somebody had a concussion they didn't really get a lot of help they've struggled for two or three months and now they're really having issues going back to school and they've had to actually fully come out of school. So we do know is that the earlier you can intervene in these concussions and make sure that they get the right information to help with the recovery, the, the more likely they are to recover faster. So if we can set up a standard approach on how we manage concussions, I think, you know, that'll make the improving how we, we look after those in leaps and bounds, because I guess, you know, at the end of the day, the focus is on how we support people.
0: I mean, Danielle, pardon the pun, but it seems like a no brainer. It feels like it should be in place right now.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess we've been um, with some researchers at AUT and Otago. Last year, we were funded by the, the Participatory Science into Action grant from the Otago Museum. And we looked at developing a concussion guideline framework. So, you know, it really focused on, okay, well, if we were to develop a, a guideline for how students are managed in schools, what would it look like? And You know, often you develop these guidelines and that's great in theory, but what does it look like in practice? But we really focused on here's steps that you can do, but also we know that the context of each school is slightly different. Some schools have school nurses, some don't, some have physios. So, you know, how can you take this guideline and look at how do we adapt this to each school's local context? So, I guess. Currently, we're working with four schools in Otago and two schools in Hawke's Bay who are implementing this guideline in their schools. And then we'll just go, you know, we've had, I think, about 20 concussions in each of these schools, across these schools that have gone through this process. So what we'll do at the end of the year is sit down and go with focus groups in the school and interviews through the players on how their recovery went. And then, yeah, hopefully look to update those guidelines based on the feedback we've had and how it's gone.
2: It doesn't say um, one size fits all, and so after 21 days you'll find a return from a concussion. Some people will recover more quickly, but other people may take longer. And so um, the processes that we're working on now and the research that Danielle's doing is enabling us to actually put support around individuals and recognise what they need in their their case. Mm. And so it manages and monitors their recovery, and they don't return to to um, well to school even or to play until they're ready to do so.
0: Realistically, is that something that could go nationwide to every sport, encompass every sport? Well,
2: we we think it is. You know, yeah. I mean, th- none of these things happen without resource. Um, but you know, apps are really common now. You know, people can have an app for you know, pretty much anything, and so having an app um, that they use to um, you know to to manage and monitor um, their head wellbeing, um, why not?
0: And so as awareness grows and as the stories grow and there's court cases and all this kind of thing, does that make people fearful about letting their kids go on the rugby field?
2: I think it would be naive for us to say it, it doesn't, or it doesn't have the potential to, and, and so you know, again we, at the community game level we're, we're really mindful of that, of the the perceived risk of engaging in a sport like rugby, which is a contact sport and you'll never remove all of the risk, right? And we're firm believers that the you know, mental social, um, physical benefits of participating in sport outweigh some of those actual risks, but We're also really mindful of doing what we can to mitigate those risks. So we have um, a graduated approach to tackling, actually. So when kids first start playing at the young age, they play ripper rugby, uh, and that introduces just the concept of close physical proximity without them actually being able to go in and make a tackle. That's where
0: they have a thing on the side of their shorts. Yeah, the ripper flags, yeah. (laughs) That's
2: great, and so we And so we move them from that that non-contact form into uh, smaller sided forms of the game, and then ultimately into... Uh, full contact, 15-a-side rugby. Um, we have the Tackle Clinic uh, programme, which is a, prog- a coaching programme that we put all the, our junior players through uh, all the provincial unions do to ensure that they know how to tackle properly and that they've been coached on how to safely tackle. Um, we, we're constantly experimenting with the laws of the game as well. right? So this year we've got two uh, experimental laws in place for domestic rugby and one is... Uh, around the media collisions for uh, kick receipts. And so at community level, players are required to take kicks on the ground. You can't jump to catch a kick oh. or contest a kick, right? So, you know, you, you see those really high-profile high instances where two players come together in the air, and it's pretty spectacular. And mm. I can ima- imagine that for some parents, they're saying, well, that, look, that doesn't look very safe. And so we've taken that risk away by requiring players to be on the ground when they... Uh, receive a kick. The other thing we've we've done at community level is we've lowered the, the allowable line for the height of a tackle so all tackles must be um, below the sternum whereas it's slightly higher in professional and elite rugby and uh, and we'll continue to experiment with that so yeah, don't be surprised if we go a bit further um, but but we always want to be evidence based in the decisions that we make right so rather than just being subjective or a small think tank thinking that these good ideas need to come to fruition we'll trial them. Yeah. We'll then assess the evidence in terms of Rates of injury, numbers of tackles made, injuries that occurred through tackles. What did the players think of it? What did the coaches think of it? And if all those things stack up, then they, they might move from an experimental law to a, to a fully-fledged law for the game, but we do have How? that flexibility.
0: Are you a rugby player?
2: I was, Or you yeah. were? It would have been 20 years ago that I retired. Uh, I played from my, my teenage years uh, right through until um, I think I was about 29 years old when I
0: started. OK, I so, so the kind of rugby that you were playing... Will the young kids that you're involved in setting the rules for now, will they be playing that sort of rugby? I mean, how, how do you see it changing, the, the I guess, the professional adult game?
2: Yeah, look, it's still, it's still in essence the same game. And so we talk about the core... Uh, attributes or traits of the game you know, needing to be preserved. It still needs to be rugby, so you've still got to pass the ball backwards. You still have to have a tackle and a scrum and a line-out. Uh, but there are things you can do around that. And, you know, as the professional game is constantly innovating around... Uh, for example, how the breakdown is refereed. Um, there's, it's the same game and it'll still be the same game, uh, mm. but it doesn't mean that we can't tweak and, and play around with it around the edges to ensure that it's safer and more attractive.
0: But it does make you wonder, you know, as more research is coming out and as more is known about the effect on, on the brain and long and short-term effect, it does make you wonder how how much longer this game can be played or any kind of contact Sport.
2: Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, again, th- that's a fair question, and this is, a, this is a really valid conversation for us to be having, but it's not a conversation about rugby, right? It's a conversation about contact sports, and it's a conversation about risk, because even non-contact sports have risk of, of head injury. You know, we've just seen soccer um, introduce a trial around re- removing the header from, uh, I think, under 12 and below. So, um, yeah, so it's not a conversation about any one particular sport or any one particular style of sport. Um, but, you know, again, we, we're firm believers in the in the value of our sport and of team sports in terms of the benefits that it offers people um, versus the risks that come with participating. Um, and, you know, it's just a matter of ensuring that we, we're doing all that we can to mitigate those risks, to look after people when they do suffer an injury. Mm. Um, but, you know, the day we say that people should stop uh, participating in any form of activity that carries any sort of risk with it, um, it'll be a pretty boring place to live in, won't it? Yeah. <laughs>
0: So, there's quite a lot of behind-the-scenes work in on, on getting a law in place like the US or, the, or Canada. How far away do you think that is for New Zealand?
2: I'm the wrong person to ask, right? I mean, that's a regulatory question. Um, and, and all we've done in the last month or so is, is try to start a conversation. So, you know, we haven't we haven't actively engaged with, with government or with health agencies around what it would take... Uh, to formalise something. The bit that we can control is what rugby does mm. and so we're putting this in place for rugby um, but the, the, the broader conversation that we're trying to raise is actually is a something that would be good for New Zealand not just for our sport.
0: And if you want to find out more about what New Zealand rugby is doing in the community go to their website for a host of videos and information. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom 4 RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Alexia Russell. And thanks to Steve Lancaster and Danielle Salmon, Mark Ewa.